Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We're going to continue our series this morning entitled The Big Story, but I would like to subtitle this this morning, Redemption Made Available. How many understand that redemption is available to all? But we have, I sometimes wonder, I know God makes no mistakes, but I sometimes wonder, wouldn't it have been better if God would have just made us choose him? But he gives us the opportunity to either choose or not to choose and so today we're going, to, um, we're going to discuss that. And if you will go with me to the book of First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. And I want to make the point today that we want to show the necessity of receiving the redemption that Calvary offers. Redemption, grace, mercy, salvation, it's available to us. But you've got to receive it. You've you got to claim it. The book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. If you have that in your Bible, say amen. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood, everybody say the precious blood, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. How many know that we are in these last times? Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Father, I love you, and I'm so thankful for the privilege to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm thankful that you've given us a time and a place to gather together and worship and magnify the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for the next few minutes that our minds and hearts be clear, be fixed upon you. Lord, anything that may stand or hinder the movement of the Spirit of God, I rebuke in the name of Jesus Christ, and let us focus on the center of what you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. How many has ever been to a, uh, like a theatrical play, or perhaps a play your child at school, or um, everybody pretty much has been to a play? And you know how the scenes change, and sometimes the curtain may fall, and, and when the curtain rises back up again, the backdrop's changed, and there's been some things added or taken away from the stage. I am going to do something a little 
unusual this morning, and I want to preach and teach this message from that vantage point. We are all an audience, and we're watching a play, and in doing so, I'm, I'm going to ask Brother Jack, would you dim the lights in the congregation? And we're going to look at a story as it unfolds out of the Word of God, and we're going to see just how this took place. Turn to your neighbor before you're seated and tell him what you want for Christmas. Praise the Lord. The dimming of the lights is a twofold purpose. I want to put you, set us in the mood of a play. And for those of you who will be sleeping, I won't be able to see you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This first scene unfolds and the blow shattered across his back. and He fell to the rocky road only to be roused by the jeers of the soldiers. He shook his head. He pushed to his feet. And the blood and the sweat that was stinging his eyes. He hadn't been whipped like this silent stranger behind him who the crowds were so obsessed with. But the soldiers had taken their usual blows as they waited impatiently for the political games with Barabbas and this stranger to end. Every blow seemed to hurt worse as this man's fate drew near. Not that he hadn't deserved it. As the day drug on to the shouts of the mob and the increasingly violent attacks of the soldiers, his dark criminal past consumed him. His history of the life that he lived consumed him more and more. He tried to block out all of the memories, all the sins, all the evil deeds that he had committed, every vile thing that he had done. But with every memory, he dismissed another violent act would take its gruesome place. He was now face to face with a feeling that he had been able to forego his whole life, a feeling that he had been able to control, a feeling that when it would find its way to him, he could find some kind of distraction to remove it. But now that feeling he could not remove and shame began to set in. He couldn't reason it away or drown it out like in times past. And it was here to go along with the sure justice that was coming, the justice that he really knew he deserved. And as sickening as the thought of the cross was, the ceaseless plague of guilt and shame was worse for this thief. As he topped the hill, he glanced back over his shoulder, and his eyes fell on this, this silent man, this man that would hardly ever speak. What was it about this man, this man that they called Jesus, that was so intriguing, so irresistible? There was a group of women offering their tears and cries of prayer that broke out through the mob. And this man, Jesus, broke his silence and simply said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, 
but weep for yourselves and for your children. A chill, a chill ran through his body at the stranger's words, and the words were so certain that Jesus was so unlike anyone he had ever seen, even with the most feared men that he had met or encountered in his life. But, but now, as time marched on, the soldiers surrounded him and his heart pounded as the nails were driven into him. And he, he gave in to the pain and he was hoisted up upon the cross. And every cell in him protested every breath that he would take. Even the mocking could not distract him from the pain. He tried to, to focus on the crowd and he tried to focus on this man next to him, this, this Jesus. But he could not block out the sensations that would overwhelm his body. But it seemed that the soldiers were not interested in him and they were consumed, consumed with tormenting this man next to him, this, this Jesus why were the soldiers so obsessed with him? There was no doubt on this day that he was certainly the, the main attraction. They even bartered and gambled for his clothes as they taunted him. And the longer this thief on the cross stared at Jesus, the more he realized how very different that he was. To the soldiers' abuse, he only answered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in contrast to his own hate and fear and seething wickedness, the silent suffering of this one, this, this Jesus, all that encountered him, he only showed mercy and love. Maybe that was why he said it. Maybe that's why it happened so fast in the midst of the soldiers' jeers and their fellow prisoners. He yelled, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And instinctively, something burst out into this thief. He could not contain it, and he was angry. And he echoed and hollered back across to the other man, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve. But this man... This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. With that, he turned to find Jesus staring at him with patience. What was this, this look in the eyes of this man? What was this feeling that overwhelmed him and consumed him? It was something that he had never experienced before. Could this be what others had spoke of? Could, could this be? unconditional love, the weight of the shame swallowing him, he pleaded, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he spoke, and his voice seemed to emit something tangible. It was as if an arm of love was wrapping around him, embracing him. His words consumed him, and he felt the glorious release of shame as Jesus silently whispered, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The next scene unfolds. The curtain has dropped and the backdrop has been changed and there has been some actors added to the scene. And when 
the curtain comes up, this big story with the drama at every turn changes. And here there are two characters that we know as Adam and Eve. and They've rejected the hero's plan. God has mercifully spared them from the just penalty of death. But the, the stage changed when paradise lost and, and human creation, mankind, Adam and Eve, now is fighting for their very survival. Generations follow likewise. They bounce back and forth and bounce. Sometimes they choose to follow God and sometimes they choose to follow the idols that society has set up and placed before them. But despite humanity's rejection, God continued to offer the invitation to fellowship with him. He would speak immediately with a man named Abraham and call his special offer of relationship a covenant. In it, he would declare his desire to have a special people and the terms of the arrangement would allow flawed humanity to join with a holy God. This this covenant or, or this plan, if you will, was necessary for man to have a way to make payment for his sins. And, and so a procession of characters take place throughout the word of God and they represent generation to generation. And as we march across this stage that is said of this play that we're watching, there are illustrations and stories of battles fought, sacrifices offered, and miracles witnessed as God pursued his people across the centuries. You know, I find it amazing sometimes when just thinking how how God has picked and placed us in his church. I, I spoke with a gentleman a couple of weeks ago at one of our outreach ministries, and he said to me, he said it was the greatest day of his life when he decided. He said, I just woke up one morning And I decided after all of my sin and peril that I was going to turn my life around and that I was going to follow Jesus Christ. And I said, that is no doubt a miraculous story. But I said, you have one of the main details wrong. I said, you did not choose God. Jeremiah said he knew us before we were formed. There's not a man, woman, boy, or girl in this house that has chose God. But God chose us. He gave us the distinct privilege to be in the house of the Lord and to be with his people. And I think in the times that are coming that we see, and I'm not here to cast stones. I know there are certain circumstances, but... What is so scary to me as a society, we are heading in a direction. I seen someone the other day, it was perhaps a a post, and I I know it was intended to be funny, but yet it was so real to me that uh, in this day and age of virtual reality that we can live in and the kids play games in, and this individual put a, 
a device on his head where he could enter into a a world through his mind and he was able to wake up out of bed and he was able to pick the attire that he wanted to wear that day, whether it was a suit or if he was going to a different style church, he could wear jeans and a flip-flops and a t-shirt and he was able to choose the, the type of church that he would be in, whether it be Baptist or Church of God or Methodist or Pentecostal. He was able to even pick the songs that he wanted to praise and worship the Lord to. And then in conclusion, he was able to pick the sermon that he wanted to hear. And I know that seems far-fetched to us as, as people who hear the Word of God the way we hear it, but we are quickly coming to that, ladies and gentlemen. Already now you see, and, and again, I'm not casting stones, but you see radio and TV evangelists who petition people to be a part of their media ministry. It's all right to sit at home and and worship the Lord and, and, and join us through TV or through radio. But I think there is something distinct, something significant, and something powerful that happens when we unite and gather together in the house of the Lord and begin to worship Him. The stage change and at the center is this melee, this big altar, this giant altar that's covered in blood and there's this horrible smell of animal carcass so disgusting that the audience the the children of Israel almost regurgitate because of the horrible acts and the horrible odors that take place on this altar but the temporary system of the law serves to point to a better a lasting means by which humanity would be redeemed or brought back from the penalty of sin. Jeremiah said in chapter 31, and I read from the New King James Version, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and I will remember it no more. And at once... As Jeremiah concludes that, this scene changes again. And by some impressive theatrical device, the altar, that bloody altar where thousands upon thousands of God's creatures have been sacrificed and blood has been spilt and shed to purge the sins of the children of Israel. Now that is replaced with a manger. And there's a spotlight shining on this manger and there's this young, lovely couple who now encounter having a child born. And this was no ordinary baby. This was a special baby, fully God, fully man. And the sound comes up as his name, Jesus. God himself came to save his people. 
You know, in a world that has lost all sense of reality of what Christmas really is, and I'm not here today to diminish Christmas by no stretch of the imagination, but Christmas is so far from what it is intended to be. Irrelevant of whether Jesus was born on December 25th or not is, is not the point here. The point is that as a country and as a nation many years ago, we set aside this day to recognize what it truly meant that a Savior was born. There was a child born that would grow, that would minister, that would, that would give his life, that would be buried, that would rise again to save our sins. But somehow, somehow as time has marched on, we've turned this into some celebration of gifts and just another day off or just the opportunity to, to travel. But I wonder, have we, have we let this creep into the church or do we fully understand what this season really is about? How do you and I keep the awe and wonder? How many remember the night they received the gift of the Holy Ghost? How? How do we keep the awe and the wonder of that feeling? I think that can be simply answered by saying keeping a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Our pastor for the last few months has preached till he's blue in the face about the importance of being in pursuit of God and a relationship with God. As a church, we've dedicated seasons of prayer all aimed at creating a relationship with God. The scene changes again and the audience marvels at his miraculous wisdom and all the realization that he is God manifested in the flesh. He, he crosses the stage to the left and he turns water into wine. He moves to the right and he raises up a dead woman. The miracles that he performed defy logic and the audience wait with bated breath to see what he will do next. But in all of the miracles, in all of the awe and wonder of this man Jesus, there's tension there's tension among those for all along the story. Prophet after prophet steps in to the spotlight and he utters a word that foreshadows the sacrifice of a Savior to reconcile the penalty for your sins and for my sins. All the signs point. Every word that these prophets utter point to this perfect man. Surely it cannot be. Surely there is some other way. There has to be another design plan because the hero cannot die. Heroes don't die. John Wayne doesn't die. Randolph Scott, Audie Murphy, Clint Eastwood, the hero does not die. But remember this hero in all of his might He's merciful. See, he knows the end from the beginning. And he looked into the future and he sees us, a generation of people, bound by the curse of sin, fighting shame and incapable of healing and fixing ourselves and forgiving ourselves of sin and the sins that overcome 
us and attacks us on a day to day. And so the scene changes again and the lights shine and the backdrop. We find ourselves in a garden. This time where this hero, this Jesus, prays in agony. He's wrestling with the weight of the scene that we now recognize as inevitable. If humanity will be free, then he must pursue what is about to take place. The audience perks up to the sound of feet marching. They hear the rumble of soldiers coming. And into this garden burst these Roman soldiers led by one of Jesus' own who would find himself at the table with Jesus, who would find himself in Jesus' inner circle. A brief scuffle with swords would take place and then our hero goes off without a fight, without a word. Torture, interrogation, and an unjust trial dominate the next scene that we will watch. Soldiers mock Jesus. They beat him. They mash a crown of thorns on his head. And the audience watches in horror as the crowd who had benefited from his miracles now cry, crucify him, crucify him. Keep in mind today, ladies and gentlemen, that there are people in this crowd that were healed by Jesus. In this very crowd, there were people that Jesus had forever changed their lives. And now they chant against him. How could they stand idly by and allow this horrible, horrible act to happen? And I know we're quick when we read these scriptures or as this play is unfolding this morning, we're, we're quick to throw stones at this mob. We're quick to find faults in the people that were there that day. But I submit to you this morning that if we fast forward to today and if we put on a coat of honesty and question ourselves, how many times, how many times has he called on me to do something and I spit in his face? How many times have I been asked by him to help an individual And I plucked his beard. How many times has he woke me up in the middle of the night to pray for someone that that needed a divine touch from the Lord? But I said, I'm too tired, Lord. And I pushed a crown of thorns down upon his head. How many times in a church service, at a men's conference, at a family camp gathering, Has the Spirit of God been divinely moving and He's urging me and pushing me to step out and receive something from Him? But I clenched to the back of a pew or a chair and I crucify Him. He was brutally nailed to a cross. It was dropped into the earth. And Jesus died for our sins. He died so that 
we would not have to pay the price. His mercy trumped justice and he became the payment for freedom. After Jesus died and this scene changes, the disciples buried him in a tomb and we watch as the soldiers seal the opening of the tomb with an enormous stone and the political maneuvering was now in place and Jewish and Roman leaders were were quickly trying to eliminate the political threat that Jesus posed and they were convinced that the disciples would steal his body. And so they tried to to cover him and make it impossible because they didn't want it to look like that Jesus had risen from the dead. However, little did they realize that in this big story that we're talking about this morning, there was power far beyond what any writer could script. The audience senses the height of the story has arrived and indeed something amazing is about to happen in the next scene. Women creep across the stage, fearful and hesitant. They're easing in to anoint the body of Jesus. And as they arrive at the tomb, they see the stone removed. And the spotlight shines bright on the opening of the cave. But the dreadful stone is no longer there. And trembling, the women peer into the tomb. And they find it empty. Suddenly, two angels appear by them, and the women collapse, bowing their faces to the ground. But the angels gently and slowly announce the truth that we've come to know today that echoes across time after time after time. Jesus is risen. We see the scene change, and John and Peter race toward him. Scripture says that they ran. I wonder what would happen if we ran to God more often. I'm guilty this morning, and I'll ask you not to judge me too hard, but my nature is I'm a a fixer. On my job, it's what I do. Most of the days, it consists of fixing something, not necessarily mechanical, but straightening something out, getting something where we can all work together and And sometimes I let that bleed over into my spiritual life. And I tell myself when I'm faced with some spiritual adversity or some dilemma in my life that I can fix this. I just need a little time and I can fix this. And I wonder how many times in my life it would have been so much simpler if I would have just given it to God and allowed God to be my first option instead of my last option. Audience members find themselves leaning forward in their seats wanting to peer over the shoulders of this John and Peter who now are so animated and ecstatic. Jesus rose from the grave to take dominion over power of death. It was not enough for Jesus to die. If Jesus had only died, it would have been admirable but he would have been no more than some noble martyr. But because Jesus died, was buried, and came back to life, he proved once and for all that his power and his authority is over everything in heaven and earth. Paul tells us in his writings in Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. As the audience stares at the open grave, the the narrator explains that with Jesus' resurrection, he defeated Satan and his plan to, to bring eternal destruction and torment to all of humanity with the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power. The curse of death was broken. The writer of Hebrews said, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to release those who through fear of death all of their lifetime subject to bondage. All you and I have to do is to surrender the authority authority to Jesus. He's done all the work. He's paid the price. Like I said a few minutes ago, there are things in our life that we need to take straight to God first thing. I think we fool ourselves sometimes and we think we are spiritually stronger than we really are. We try to take on the enemy by ourselves when in reality we need to let God take over and fight them for us. And you say, well, why don't God just pick them up and take them to start with? Well, he's a gentleman. and He's not going to force himself. The realization dawns on an emotional audience by now, and as they perceive what Jesus has actually done, this ultimate sacrifice that he has actually paid. He created humanity's ultimate hope. And this, the narrator announces, is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and to redeem humanity. This story ends, and the lights come on. Scripture bears out this gospel message and how we can respond to it. As Peter wrote, the precious blood of Jesus Christ redeems us. Peter's metaphor of redemption calls the metaphor of a slave being freed from his master by the payment of ransom. In that sense, every man and woman in this house was a slave to a master. But Jesus paid our ransom so we can be redeemed. We can be bought and released from bondage of sin. And that's our hope and faith. And in doing so, Jesus has individually called us. Everyone in this house has a calling. If I may be so blunt and bold, it's an obligation to share and be a witness. The gospel was never intended for you and I to be saved and sit. receiving the magnificent gift of the Holy Ghost and being baptized in the precious name of Jesus Christ was never intended to take place in our life and then sit idly on a church pew and wait for the eastern sky to split. But God has individually called each and every one of us 
And it is so easy sometimes to say, well, that's not my cup of tea. I'm not an outgoing person, so I can't give a Bible study or I feel too inadequate to share the gospel because I don't know where to start. Can I tell you what the majority of the people in this world who are in hopeless, desperate situations really want to hear? I'm not diminishing the importance of the Word of God. But sometimes opening up the Bible and quoting Acts 2.38 will not affect someone whose life is in peril. They want to hear a personal story of how God brought you and I from a bottomless pit and turned our lives around and set my feet on a rock and established my goings. I spoke to an individual the other day who is a, he's new in the Lord and he had this complex Bible study, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not against that, but he had this complex Bible study that he was trying to teach to a few individuals. And in this Bible study, he had a little pamphlet, and it was just a, a simple daily devotion. And he was showing me this Bible study and asking me where, what this meant and what that meant. And, and I just I, I stopped him for a moment, and I said, you are speaking to men who know nothing about church. Who know nothing about Jesus Christ. Who do not recognize that they were born a sinner and are still sinners. I said, leave the Bible study in your locker for a few days. And take this devotional, something that's comes across with simplicity that they can understand. People are lost, they're hopeless, and they're dying. And they're looking for a reason, a reason to turn their life around. And every day that you and I live, we have the opportunity to share that. As our musicians come and the lights lighting back up in the house, we will finish and conclude. And I conclude with a story that took place on January 22nd of 2012, which seemed like an ordinary day. Or it could have been as ordinary as it could have been for the Tysons. See, life for the Tyson family was on the western coast of England, and it was anything but typical because George Tyson was a 61-year-old carpenter who cared for his son, Gary, who was 32. Gary was physically disabled after suffering severe head injuries when he fell from an upstairs window as a toddler. A dedicated father, George, prioritized his time with Gary, stopping his carpentry projects every day to devote a part of his afternoon each day to take a walk with Gary along the coast of the Irish Sea and push him in his wheelchair. On this particular Sunday, George was taking Gary on a stroll along a coastal road in a village near their home. And investigators say that at approximately 4 p.m., a white compact car rounded a curve, traveling toward them at a high rate of speed. Perhaps the teenage driver didn't see them. Perhaps he lost control. They may never know how this horrific accident took place. 
But what they do know comes from eyewitnesses that as the car sped towards George and Gary, George realized that Gary, his son, was in the path of the speeding vehicle. And in a split second, he made a decision that his family says characterizes his heroic nature. George, with all of his might, attempted to push Gary's wheelchair out of the path of the car, but in doing so, he left himself in the direct line of the impact. And George died at the scene. Gary was airlifted to a hospital and was later released after being treated for minor injuries. Villagers who were accustomed to the side of George pushing Gary for walks in his wheelchair grieved the loss of a man who was so deeply woven into the fabric of the community as an icon of love and care. The Tyson family naturally reeled from the shock. But however, after all of the services were over, it was George's daughter, Melanie, who added that the story is blessed with his selfless act of saving the life of my brother. And I read you that story today, and no doubt there are countless others. George's story reached beyond the small community as countless readers were moved by the story of the depth of a father's love to sacrifice himself for a son. And I know it's a noble story, and I know there's many others like it. But I wonder, and I'm not trying to minimize this in any way, but when we see Jesus' act, what he done, compared George's actions are but a small glimpse of the more far-sweeping eternal act of Calvary. I was helpless to save myself. But Jesus stepped in and gave his life for me. The path to Calvary was a torturous one. And I I have done nothing to earn it. I often wonder... Why, God, who knows the end from the beginning. A God, again, that Jeremiah said, knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb. A God who would know every mistake that I would ever make. A God that would know and see every sin that I've ever committed. A God that would know all of my faults and flaws. A God for me personally that I would reject time and time again. Why would a God that knew all of this would take place die for me? Why would a God that would know how you might live out your life die for you? I know it's cliche and the whole world quotes this verse, but it's very simple that he so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. What a travesty it would be today to not take advantage of what Jesus Christ done on the cross for you and I. I submit this morning to you that if you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord, if you have not 
felt the authoritative power of the Holy Ghost in your life. That the way you stepped into this house today, you don't have to leave that same way. His love and His mercy and His grace extends far and beyond what anything the world might deem to be for you. As we stand across this house today, and as we lift our hands toward heaven, I admonish us in this short prayer, let's, let's ask the Lord to remind us. I'm not saying don't have a good time with your family. Exchange the gifts. Eat the turkey and dressing. But in doing so, remember exactly what really took place on this day. And that was a God hung on a cross in shame, died for us, rose again so that you and I might have an eternal life with him. Let's lift our hands across this house. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386 935 2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.